listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to this bonus episode of the podcast. And I call it a bonus episode because I did not see this one coming. Uh, And also because it's time sensitive. Here's the story. What happens is I get a letter, uh, an email, uh, a few weeks ago uh, from a guy named Joe Blankholm. And it's addressed to me as Dear Secular Community Leader. And it turns out this guy is conducting a survey of members of secular communities in the United States, trying to figure out how secular and non-theistic people in this country, how they kind of deal with community life. And, you know, as you might expect, that's kind of my thing. So I immediately took the survey. It took me about 15 minutes. It's online. You can find it at secularcommunities.com, and the link will be on the on the show notes, I urge you to do it um, for the good of the world. But there, there were a few people I thought he should reach out to. I thought maybe he doesn't know them. And, uh, and then after I took the survey, I had a few questions. So I sent him a note saying, gee, you know, I'd love to talk to you for a few minutes if you got a chance. I got a couple questions. He immediately called me back. And before I knew it, I was like, this guy's really interesting. I hit record on the Zoom call. And uh, you're going to hear the conversation. And it was a truly interesting conversation, not just about secular community building, but about research and academia and how things work and science. And I just found the guy to be way more interesting than I expected. Um, and he's working with some, some really good people, pulling together data from all over the place. And I said, I said to him, I said, dude, my audience – a lot of them are part of secular communities or they're trying to figure out how to start a secular community or they would never be a part of secular community. I think it's the dumbest idea in the world. And they write to me and tell me that. And he said, I want to talk to all those people or even the ones that are just kind of like, ah, it's not, yeah, you can take it or leave it. He said, I just want to know kind of how secular people are thinking around community and what attracts them and what detracts them and what their backgrounds are. So anyway, so I'm just... I said, I will, I will tell people. And that's why I'm – and, and the darn thing is I, I, I made this great introduction to the show with a really cool quote at the end, which I am going to share. If you listen through this interview, I have an amazing quote on the other side um, that I will set up on the other side. Uh, but I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there and I'm going to just hope that my folks will all – fill out the survey because it will make my folks are all over the country, all over the world, really. I said, it'll make it a lot stronger. And he was like, please do it. So I'm doing it. So here's me and Joe Blankholm talking about secular community and a lot of other really cool stuff. If you care about the future of humanity, and I genuinely believe that like whether, whether people who don't believe in God figure out a way to spend time together in a way that inspires them to be their best selves and to care about the world and to care about one another, I really believe that is a critical part of whether or not we make it to the other side of all the craziness that we're in. And so if you care about the future of humanity, check it out. And I'll see you on the other side with a beautiful quote from long ago. Joe, can you hear me? I can. Great. It feels like magic every time it works. These days. <laughs> it's so wrong. 
Oh, I'm so glad. To, I'm so glad to get you, man. So glad to get you. And I, and I won't take long because it sounds like you're on your way to something important, like maybe lunch. Yeah, just lunch. Nothing too important. Ah, that's pretty important. Hey, so listen, I'm sure we would have a glorious conversation um, about other, all sorts of things. But I got to tell you, I just took your survey. And excellent. I'm, I'm excellent. Yes, but I so wish I would have. I, I so wish. How many people did you show that survey to before you? Like how many people were like your beta testers on that survey? Mm, so when we do a survey, this is the process is we will discuss it in a small group of people and you make all different kinds of small compromises. And then we piloted it with probably around 85 people. Gotcha. Okay. I was not one of them. No. Or I would have, I would have told you that like I was flummoxed on probably 10 different questions because you it, religion and christianity felt like they were almost interchangeably being used like the mm -hmm. world would be better without religion and i was trained to think of religion as the collective pursuit of life's ultimate questions and so when i was at usc i operated out of the office of religious life and i was considered a religious leader because I was actively trying to help students answer life's ultimate questions using science and reason. And so, so I'm with you on this. I think religion is a really difficult word. I think yeah. it's um, overdetermined. It has a lot of different meanings. And so what we try to do in our research that's so difficult to do is not stipulate a definition to try to source it in some ways in its variety from among the people who are, in this case, taking a survey or when I'm conducting interviews. And there's another project I'm actually working on that um, I've called the Meaning of Religion Project because it addresses exactly this challenging question, yeah. which is religion means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So how do you have a conversation with a lot of different people about something that no one's really agreeing on? And so figuring out a research methodology that can help with that. That's in some ways the challenge, I think really of, you know, 21st century research in general, but certainly around questions related to religion, because the fact is you can be secular and religious at the same time. We have a lot of examples of that. It just depends on what you mean by those two words. So how do you deal with that? And how do you begin to start parsing yeah. it? Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean we crack the nut. If you're having a really hard time with some questions, I'm not saying we figured it out, but we definitely understand that struggle. Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad because I, I just I found myself going like, "Golly, I you know I'm somebody who's trying to create, in a sense, a secular religious op option for people." Where they go like, "Oh, you want to gather together and you want to pursue loving kindness as a way of life because you think that it is the surest path to making the most of your life." I like join us. That's what we're doing. Um, you know, we got a lot. Of, we got a lot of data to suggest that building loving relationships and and doing work that makes things better for other people and cultivating gratitude um, is is a, you know it's kind of best practices. Um, and so we're and, and and we also know that we can't do that as well individually as we can collectively for a variety of reasons that having to do with kind of our evolutionary wiring. So here we are. Um, and so when people are sort of like, so do you think religion is bad? You're like, well, which religions are we talking about? <laughs> um, right. 
And so, yeah, so it's, it, so that was, so it was a tough one for me. And I, I know um, that I'm probably more um, thoughtful on that subject because I spend a lot more time around it than most people. But um, I thought, gosh, the people in my community are going to struggle with this one. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll fill in the other section on a few questions like I did. Yeah. So when, when we look at it in terms of analysis, we're thinking, um, these are hard questions. People are going to have to decide one way or another. And then when you're, when you're doing the analysis, you're essentially getting all these different types of people or subpopulations. And as those emerge, as those emerge, as you take certain questions and combinations with other questions, mm-hmm. um, we're hoping we can get a picture. So you remember probably that question where it's like, what do you, what are the things you associate with religion? That question is really trying to get a working definition. Yeah. And then through clustering the different things that people are associating with religion, hopefully we can um, get a picture in some ways of how those individuals or groups of individuals yeah. are looking at that term and then combine that with their responses to other questions I, I so that we know I, what their working definition is as they respond to some of these other questions. Oh, no, that makes sense. And I couldn't imagine a more challenging thing, a, a more challenging project than to come up with, you have a limited amount of time with these people. I mean, you know, people are going to give you 15 minutes maybe. And so you're like, well, what are the questions that we can ask that can get us there that we can cross reference that way? Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't envy you. I didn't envy you the, the, uh, survey design. Um, but, uh, but but the other thing was, there was a point at which it was like atheists should, um, you know, try to try to convince Christians to join them or like, like proselytize, uh, believers. And I thought like, huh, which under what circumstances? Cause like, there are many times when I'm like, I've got to get that person out of their crazy religious thinking cause it's destroying their lives. And then there are other times where like, I've got to leave that person on and maybe even try to help shore up their religious thing. It's their best chance of dying happy. Um, so, so like, you know, so it's like under what's, you know, like it was like agree or, or disagree. And I like, Depends on the circumstance. Yeah, um, totally. But that's a pastoral yeah. question. You know, that's a pastoral care question that probably most people are like, for them, it's much more philosophical, whereas for me, it's much more practical. Yeah. And as a researcher, I break it down in two ways. So surveys, right? We're, we're I think, in some ways coming up against is the survey as an instrument, the way it limits, the way it necessarily boxes us in and yeah. asks us to make ourselves clear by responding in a way. Um, and there are different ways people interact with surveys that are, you know, the, the one extreme is uh, transparency, where you just give the answer that you expect the uh, the survey wants. Another is opacity. You refuse the survey entirely. Most of us are somewhere in between, and we sort of wrestle with being boxed. If you combine that survey instrument with interviews, with field research, you can tell different types of stories with these different forms of empirical data gathering. And they're always imperfect, but these are some of the ways that we maybe, I don't know, mitigate these imperfections. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Like that was the only question I refused to answer on the survey. I just left it blank. Right. Um, yeah. That's, that's, I mean, this is great. All right. So like, let me back you up for podcast purposes. And, mm-hmm. and so how long have you been studying this stuff? So I wrote my dissertation uh, at Columbia University. I got a PhD in religious studies. I'm, I'm basically an anthropologist. I published mostly in sociology. Um, I got my dissert- I finished my dissertation in 2015, and I started that project in 2010. So I guess 11 years I've been studying um, secular people and secularism in one way or another. Okay, wow. And 
Have you learned anything that surprised you? So many things are surprising. Really? I think, I mean, that there is a combination of secular and religious, I think is really interesting. Honestly, I've started to look at these as paradoxes. And I feel like we inherit these these contradictions or the contradictions, the times when we get tongue-tied or have trouble expressing ourselves, they're like clues or hints that we can trace back and we can ask ourselves, why is it hard? And the story about why it's hard, that's what I've gotten really interested in. So just trying to understand why we associate Christianity and religion and then understand how that You know, in speaking English, we're kind of always speaking Christian. We can't really help it. Goodbye is short for God be with you. It suffuses our culture and language. And that category religion, we can apply it in many different ways. We can apply it historically. We can think about religion 2,000 years ago. But we're people that emerged out of a very particular context. We're speaking English. We're very much inheritors of the British Empire. We're inheritors of British colonialism. And so when we use a word like religion, we're inheriting also all the ways it developed as a historical process, as a, as a word of power used in very different kinds of legal contexts. And that's what speaks through us. We arrive midstream in a language we didn't invent. And so understanding how the language we speak constrains us or enables us, I think is really crucial for understanding how you can have something like secular religiosity or religious secular, because you're essentially saying, I live in a way, and I know other people live in ways that aren't being adequately captured by these categories. But these categories weren't developed for my life. They were developed for different kinds of lives. And so the tension between these two forms of life, between what this word means and what we're doing, I think that's the story that I've become most interested in. That's been most surprising to me. Boy, that is the space I live in. You know, because even it's funny, like I run away from the, you know, you say, oh, well, I'll just run away from the word religion and I'll go to spirituality and you, and, you know, spirituality, like talk about connoting supernaturalism. Like, like, no, no, no. But what I mean is, you know, something ineffable, something, you know, the, the, the vibe in a room, <laughs> you know, that I, I, I don't think there's anything supernatural going on, but there's this vibe here, right? Like we all feel it like, and um, yeah. So I, I think that that's such an interesting thing that you have sort of found your way in, like where it gets hard to talk about it. That's where that's where the action is. Absolutely. I think of it as we're reaching for words and, yeah. and you just hit on it really well when you think about reaching for that word spirituality. I think of it. So my little joke about it is that the spirit's the medium. And it's often the word that we go to when we think it's not secular, it's not religious. It mediates between the two. But of course, you know, that's what spirits do, supposedly. They're things that sort of can pass through a hard wall and, and they're things that are in between. And so spirituality kind of is that. And what we're doing when we're reaching for languages, we're doing our best to express things to one another. Um, in that pragmatist traditional philosophy, you know, words are tools. And so what are we doing when we're reaching for a particular word? Why are we reaching for spirituality? It's something we can both do, and I think we can think about ourselves doing. And, and that space of reflection is, is one that I think has become really important for me and my work. Oh, Joe, man, I, I want to, I when you're not going to lunch, I want to have you back and have a real conversation, um, like a, a genuine podcast conversation. But in this moment, I'll tell you why I jumped on your email when I saw it. And that is you're studying secular communities and that, that sort of collective aspect of it. And you dropped a statistic that said there were 1,400 of them in the United States. And I thought, then why does everybody that email me emails me, tells me they can't find one. (laughs) 
you know, why, why is everybody so desperately looking for this? Or at least the people that are kind of in my sphere of influence. Um, do you really think there are 1400 actual local communities out there? Yeah, I think there are. And I think part of the problem that you're running into. So the first time I created a database of local communities was in 2012. I built it with a friend of mine who was a PhD student at Princeton at the time, Alfredo Garcia. And um, he and Todd Stiefel knew each other. And so Todd had this database of groups, but it was messy. Um, it was built by some interns that he had hired. It just needed to be cleaned up by proper researchers. So we spent a few months and went through that process of doing it and came to this number of 1,400. It, it was slightly under 1,400 in the, in the 48 states, uh, the, the contiguous 48. And so that number stayed about the same when I revalidated it in 2019. Uh, but about a third of those groups, several hundred were different. Yeah, so there's an enormous amount of churn. Over. Yep. And that's what I think makes them so hard to find in part. And I, and I also think that part of the churn has to do with how uncomfortable it is to have a secular community. It's something that we need and maybe, maybe some people need, some people don't, community in our lives, but something that for secular people feels too religious. And so that push and pull, I think, explains in some ways how hard it is to keep these groups going and, and why they'll go away and form again. Um, but yeah, there's about 1,400 at any given time. You know, that's got to have changed because of the pandemic, though. And I, and I think oh, yeah. that's something we need to think more about. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's changed because of the pandemic and it's going to be interesting to see what happens after the pandemic, because I think there's going to be a pent up desire for people to spend time together around these kinds of questions and things. And yet there's also going to be a lot more mentally ill people who are going to be drawn to those opportunities. And most secular, most communities of any kind have a certain carrying capacity for really needy people. Um, and if you overload them with needy people, uh, the leadership just goes like, I can't do this. And they, 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 they implode. And so it's going to be really interesting because there's going to be a big demand. I don't, but I think it's going to be a, a kind of demand that may be really hard to meet. Um, those are really interesting observations. I haven't thought about it in exactly those terms, and I just think you're right. Um, it'll be, it will be fascinating to see how those factors play out. I, I think you're right about the need for community and, and the community being overloaded. And then also, I, I wonder too, in some ways, how what we consider community and how community functions continues to change um, with social media and with so many people being mobile for their jobs, I think now in the United States. And so all these things, I, I'm not sure how that's gonna play out. I think it's yeah. something that I wanna understand better. Yeah, no, I, I, me too. And, and I, what's interesting too, is the fact that people need community doesn't necessarily mean that they want community. Um, you, you know? Yes, you, yeah. You think, well, 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 how could that be? I mean, people know what they need. Like, you know, I, I mean, if that were, if, if, if that were true, then, then you'd have all these depressed and anxious people out there, you know, who are falling apart. And I go, yeah, like you do. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that what people want is to stay home and watch Netflix. Um, and it's not necessarily what's good for them or what leads, you know, or, or to be on Facebook and comparing their lives with other people's lives. And we have all sorts of data to suggest that what we what we are drawn to do or what we can be attracted into doing isn't necessarily what's in our best interest. Um, and I'm a real believer that connection uh, and, and, and a certain kind of 
mutual obligation is, is actually what makes life meaningful, but it's a hard sell when you put it up against a video game. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. We make these compromises when we are in difficult situations and we don't always choose what's best for us. And, and sometimes it's even hard to see. Yeah. It feels kind of unfair. Sometimes the, the amount that individuals amount of responsibility individuals have right now in our cultures, as a lot of us are even nuclear families get smaller and smaller and more and more fractured. And so how, you know, we're, we're responding to a difficult situation. Community could be something that helps us, but it's hard to take care of ourselves. It used to, it used to be that you were individually responsible for figuring out how to operate within the structure of a community. Um, Yeah. And now your, your, your individual responsibility is to create that structure. Um, Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, most of the people in my little, my little community here in Cincinnati, they're all ex-church leaders who have a lot of experience at creating community. And we spend a lot of time figuring out what the parameters are and, and what we can and can't offer. And, um, and, and, and it's just, it's just really interesting because once you step away from step walking into an existing structure and you're creating your structure from scratch, you realize how many design elements you never thought about. Um, yeah. You just took for granted. Yeah. Because they were. Yeah, we're in a situation where we have to reinvent that wheel over and over again too, which is unfortunate because yeah. communities fracture and people have to move because of jobs and Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, you're right. And, and the situation is such that the secular religious community or the secular meaning-making community, however you want to describe that, what, what people do, um, is, is creating its model at the time when it is the most difficult for anybody, even if you had the old model, like communities are, are struggling everywhere, like the whole con- bowling alone, the whole concept of media, social media, like this is the hardest time ever to build a real in-person community. And this is the time when we're inventing our first versions. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's weird. Um, and I think people are going to these hybrid models. I, I think you, in some ways you, you have such a different perspective on it. I'm looking at it as a researcher, you're looking at it as a community builder and, and maintainer. And, and from the outside, it seems like we're moving to um, some of these hybrid models, a combination of online and in-person. And certain aspects of communal life are being realized in different ways in these different media. But I think just the in-person model seems like we're almost past that and we have to catch up if we're thinking in terms of organization or thinking in terms of like how to get the needs met that we have as human beings. And I, I don't know what that's going to look like in the coming years, but something hybrid, I think is the only way forward. I think, I think you're probably right, which is, it's just a drag for an old guy like me because I, I have a lot of energy for this and I have a lot of, I bring a lot of sort of natural gifts to it, but I don't understand that side of it. And I don't, I don't have a natural facility with relating to people yeah. I mean, you've emailed with me, you know, um, like, I, you know, I still write emails like letters, you know, I craft an email, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just not that social media person. And so I, I think what, what's a shame is, is that the people that have the strengths on the one side of that hybrid equation and the people that have the strengths on the other side of that hybrid equation don't necessarily uh, relate well to each other or, or have natural connections to each other. Um, yeah. The, 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 it's a great the, observation. Yeah. 
the humanist leaders that I've seen that have the humanist leaders I've seen that have the best, warmest social media game are oftentimes in person the the least approachable and the least connected and and vice versa. Um, people that you know like have shitty websites and terrible podcasts and awful um, Facebook pages, if I ever looked at a Facebook page, when you get them in person, they're like, hey, and you're like, wow, you're really good in a room. And, and so it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, an interesting deal. So this study, yeah. this study, what, what are you trying to get at here? What do you want to find out? Yeah, a number of things. I think we, I think we have s- several questions. One of the main ones is just thinking about secular community life in general as a thing that needs to be studied and a thing that needs to be understood. And I think there are a couple of really good reasons for that. One of them is there's a there's a book um, called American Grace. I've actually talked to James Croft about it before. He's also interested in some of the passages that concern me in there. And they found that, you know. Religious people are more likely to volunteer, to donate, to uh, be civically engaged, but they found it didn't have to do with their religious belief, but that it has to do with their being part of what they called a a morally intense community. And they have a, a line in the book where they say, you know, it could be that secular communities are morally intense communities, but we didn't study any of those because we didn't know where to find them. And so I think that when I when I read something like that, I think we need to fix that. And so Hopefully, this is part of that process of counting secular people who are starting communities, thinking about them in terms of this larger picture of, um, you know, and of social capital, of civic engagement, of community life, and and just making sure that they're part of that equation. Well, I, was surpri- I think another one. Go ahead. Yeah, I, well, that, I was surprised by that in the survey because you didn't ask much about the nature of the. You, you asked, "Are you a part of a community?" But you didn't ask, like, what are the priorities of that community? Because when I came out of Christianity, I went and visited lots of secular communities and was like, oh, this is not at all what I'm looking for. Like, this group wants to gather and make fun of Christians. This one wants to get together and just have science talks. Like, I, I, like I found that secular communities had a widely varying uh, sort of purpose statements or, or, or raison d'etre. Like they were together for all different reasons. And I couldn't find one that was about cultivating loving kindness as a lifestyle in a secular way. I just couldn't find those. Yeah, I think you raised a good point. And this comes back in some ways to the limits of survey instruments as well. It, asking an open-ended question is dangerous. How much you're asking of someone when you do ask an open-ended question, you know? And so what can we get at with boxes you can tick with limited responses. And I, I'm i sure we could have done better with that. Um, and it's something that I think we can do better of as we try to duplicate this survey again in the future to get longitudinal data, just collect data over time, understand how things are changing, but also add questions that get at some of these, um, these larger questions that we're wondering about and how to answer. I think that the, the best way to really address something is difficult and hard to understand as community life is really through mixed methods. So the survey is part of it. Um, the field research that I've done among secular organizations is another part of it. Uh, there's a book that, that I'm finishing that's based on my dissertation right now. Hopefully it'll be out um, end of this year, or early next, that focuses on the broad range of communities that people form for secular people, but also groups that I don't even think I'd call community. They do maybe more activist work or different kinds of advocacy work. And just looking at that range of ways people come to together to form mm-hmm. organizations that yeah. need to be led by secular people. 
And so I hope in combination, a, a better story can be told, but you're right. I think that there's, there's more questions we could ask if we really want to understand this, these questions. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, you know, I, I, I don't know if you ever grew up in any kind of religious community, but you know, I, I, did you? It's a mix. So uh, when I was very young, my family was not religious. And then my mom became religious uh, as, as we got older. So sort of half and half. I find this sometimes too, where it's just like a, other people I talk to, it's a difficult question. It's sort of like, sort of is really the best answer. Yeah. We were in there sometimes. Um, yeah. yeah. So I grew up in that world um, and was a leader in that world for many years. So when I came out of that world, I had a very sort of defined palette um, of, of what I was what I was looking for. And that's why like when I came into the secular world, I would go to secular conventions or secular conferences or secular student groups. And I'd be like, wow, this looks nothing like the youth group I grew up in. This looks nothing like the, the vibe here is so different from a church covered to supper that I went to the conversations that are happening here. Like, and, and I'm not talking about, about the belief system because, you know, you go to an average church covered to supper. Nobody's talking about God. Everyone, everyone, Everyone agrees about God. So you don't have to talk about that. They're talking about like, what are we going to do about the, you know, the, 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 the high school football coach who's abusing kids or what are we going to do about the, the, the election or what are we going to do about this lady's got cancer. And so the, the, the God stuff was always taken for granted. And the same way when you go to a secular group, nobody goes like, Hey, so, you know, we don't believe in God, right? Like everyone knows that. That's why we're here. So the question is, what's the tenor of the conversation beyond the belief system? And when I went into secular groups, they're, they're just, they were just about a whole different set of agenda items than I was used to being about when I was together with an intergenerational community. And so that's why I'm like, I'm really interested in like what, when people come together, what is the, what is the, what, what's the mission or what is the, the, the purpose that they're coming together around? Um, and I think like, um, you know, I dare say, I mean, I remember when I came onto USC's campus, they had a, they had a secular, like an atheist club. And I, I, I interviewed the leaders and I said, like, what do you do? And they're like, oh, we debate Christians and we, you know, we, you know, kind of put on science programs. And I was like, oh, I said, like, I don't know anything about that. I said, like, if you wanted to build a community of people that really care about each other and reach out to lonely people and try to draw them into a, a, a place where they can feel like they belong. I know how to do that. And they were like, that sounds like more fun. Let's do that. Um, and that's what we ended up doing, but it was just such a different agenda. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I, I think it stems in part from the ambiguity of what we think of when we think of secular and it's this deep, deep problem. And it has to do with secular being both not religious and secular being something like a worldview. And so when you talk about those beliefs that everyone shares in a church, and then you talk about other things, and you talk also about the beliefs in some ways that people share or the worldview, if you don't want to use the term beliefs, that secular people share when they're in a room that they've really brought themselves together for, that's what these communities are, like-minded people. Um, that question of what's shared, is it just not religion? Or is there something more being shared there? And how do you deal with that ambiguity? And then it goes to this other, this other deep ambiguity about what religion is. So if secular is not religious, 
then you need to avoid all that stuff that's religious. But if secular is something that could also be religious, that could be a way of life, as you've described it, uh, a way of being in the world, then it can actually be something like religion, or you could even call it religious. That ambiguity, I think, is 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 the challenge of being secular yeah. um, in America and around the world. And, and there are historical reasons that, that challenge has developed. That's one of those contradictions or ways in which we're tongue-tied that I've become fascinated by. And I think that that's our condition as secular people is dealing with that ambiguity, the ambivalence that we feel toward things that are religious or religion-like. And it's, so it's, it is a, wrestling it is a, that. It is a labeling problems. And, and so, you know, eventually I sort of figured out like, ah, at first I was like, I won't call myself a humanist, but it was the only way I could, I could name myself that would suggest that my definition of secular wasn't not religious. Like I, like I, like I didn't want to be a part of a group that was going to get together and talk about what we all don't believe. Um, I was anxious in being a part of a group that was, that would define some value system and say, this is what we're going to pursue together. And humanist was, I mean, it was, it was kind of almost a null set in the sense of like, it could mean whatever you wanted it to mean. Um, and it does to a lot of different people, but at least it sort of suggested that we're going to, we're going to gather around a set of shared values rather than out of a rejection of somebody else's set of shared values. And yeah. when, when I went to a lot of these atheist groups, I mean, they really were, it felt like what defined them was we all reject the same value system. So here's what I found so interesting is that, yeah, there is these communities, people are gathered around what they reject, but they are also gathered around what they affirm. And this really emerged in my interviews, and I hope it emerges in this survey as well. And so there's some broad agreement, and it doesn't mean there's agreement on every point, just like among Christians or among Muslims. There's not agreement on every point. A tradition is defined more by its common persistent disagreements than by a dogma that everyone follows. And so what are the persistent disagreements among secular people? It turns out there, there, are, there, are, there are some. And, and generally, you know, people think that science is the best way of knowing the world. Um, in technical philosophical language, you'd say they're empiricists, that yeah. you need evidence from the senses or from technology that enhances the senses like microscopes and telescopes, Hadron mm -hmm. Collider, and that that's the way you really know the world and, and things like revelation and prophecy and divine, divinely inspired scripture, they're off yeah. the table. There's something that's being affirmed there. It's a way of knowing and you can trace that way of knowing, frankly, back thousands of years. And if that's the way of knowing that you think is the only legitimate way of knowing, there's a lot of other things that go along with that. There's a, there's generally, you know, something like materialist or physicalist universe that's being, um, affirmed. There's a certain idea about death that often goes with that. And you find that not just in Western cultures, you find that also in India and the Charvaka tradition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Once you're an empiricist, there are other beliefs or parts of a worldview that go along with that. The difficulty, the challenge of affirming that is, is huge because I think there's this rejection of religion and then there's also something affirmed. That tension structures so much of what it is to be secular and to especially to be involved in a secular community. Yeah, that's good, man. That's a really interesting idea to me. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's the core <laughs> of my book. So I really appreciate you saying that. Oh man, when that book comes out, uh, that's, that's when I'll, I'll drag you back on here and we'll have a, we'll have a conversation about your book. Um, I'd be great. Cause, Cause my the people that are into, into my podcast, a lot of them are people that are hungry for connection. Like they want to be part of a church for, 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 for humanists. And they, they, they sort of hear my preacherly cadences 
and they go like, oh, he sounds like my old youth pastor. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I, I resonate with them because I haven't thrown away that vibe. Um, and, you know, we, we sing in the groups that I'm a part of, you know, we, we, we try to create rituals, all that stuff, because I'm just sort of like, that's, you know, it's, I don't believe in a supernatural thing in the world, but I'm pretty sure that when you sing together with a group of people, you end up feeling like this warm sense of connection with them. That's why armies do it. And uh, you know, we're going to do it because we're kind of going to follow the data. Um, and that's, that's what works for us uh, as, as tribal, tribal animals. So, uh, yeah. so this is, this is, I'm so, I can't wait to see your book. Um, okay. So I'm going to steer people. I'm going to play them parts or maybe just all of this conversation and say, you should take this study. If you're, if you listen to my podcast, you should take this study because even if you're not part of a community, there, there's a, there's a question like, are you part of one? But it's sort of like, who are you and who, who is in and who's not in? It's all interesting to you, right? Yes. Exactly. And, and secularcommunities.com, if you go there, you'll, you'll be able to find the survey. And that's absolutely right. It's not, you know, we have to cast a broad net and that's going to give us different populations within who takes the survey. And then it's our job to understand them better during analysis. So you're absolutely right. Um, if people are interested in taking this survey, they should. It will screen out people who have no uh, engagement whatsoever with any organization. But if you've ever been a member of a national organization or on the email list for the American Humanist Association or anything like that, absolutely, please, please take the survey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is like, it's, it's it reminds me of that Jerry Maguire movie, you know, help me help you. Like in a sense, people need to help you so that you can study and come up with all this data so that you can turn around and, put out findings that ostensibly will make things, make it easier for people who are trying to understand how to do this thing and how, and, and how to make it work in a, in a more positive way for human beings. Right. Yeah. I, I hope we or, can or get you back. I like, mean, ah, I don't care. <laughs> no, not absolutely not. You know, I think as a researcher, there's, there are ethics to these things. Like, you know, I, I spent years interviewing over 100 people who are leaders of various kinds of secular groups. Um, and I'm also a secular person myself. And so even if I'm not engaged in exactly the enterprise they're engaged in, people are giving me their time, they're giving me their effort. And I, I think we owe people that we're who are agreeing to participate in our research something back. And so we want to share the results. We're going to try to share the results with uh, some of the national organizations, but in ways that can be just distributed um, so that people can get access to them so that people are able to benefit from the participation in, in our work. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we have the exact same questions that they do. But of course, if you're talking to yeah. people who are secular movement organizers, they also don't have all the same. Well, questions. and just I, I think just half the people that will take your survey would be like, could I see that list of 1400, you know, because I might be able to find one. You know, I think there are probably oh, people yeah. who just be like, please show me where they are. I don't know how to find them myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think with so with the list of 1400, you know, we have the ways we did it. You know, we went on meetup.com. Um, we went on Facebook, finding somewhere in your local area. So there's a couple of really interesting things about that list. Um, we thought that they might be clustered around urban areas or places you find more secular people. Not so. They're in pretty much everywhere. There's all, they're all over the place, every region. 
Um, and then the other thing we found that was really interesting is we thought they, that, you know, like I said, they, they, there, there might be more where there are more secular people. Turns out there's more where there are more evangelicals. In counties where there are more evangelicals, you're more likely to find a secular group because we were studying at the county level. That's some of the, because you're trying to get data. Where do I get data from? Yeah, that makes um, sense. That's that makes perfect that really sense found. to me. That makes perfect sense on yeah. two levels. Number one is the kind of people that are secular are probably ex-evangelicals and therefore they're like, I need a group. I need a group. I was always part of a group. And then the other thing is, is that they're in hostile territory and they're like, I need some cover, please, somebody, somebody to talk to. So, I mean, it makes total sense to me that they would grow up together. Yeah, we thought of it as a friction hypothesis. Uh, and the second one, although I think, you know, you're onto something with the first one too. The friction hypothesis, absolutely, right? If you, if, if uh, evangelicalism is highly salient in your community, then you're going to want to rally into a group of people that are like you because you might be on the defensive. Yeah, absolutely. And with the first one, you, it's complicated, right? Ex-evangelicals, um, there are a lot of obviously secular people who are ex-evangelicals, also a lot of Catholics, also a lot of people who um, you know, were raised secular. And so it's this thing like, Maybe as a maybe as a researcher, I'm supposed to have all the answers or something, but I just don't. Like the more I understand, it's like my horizon of knowledge expands, and I just have all of these questions. And so some of the questions that I still think about is, you know, I, I sometimes think of these as worldview communities, more technically, you maybe to like ontological communities. These are communities of people who are organizing according to a worldview. All kinds of communities form for all different reasons, often activist causes, and they're they're ephemeral communities where the cause will will be solved. So they'll, they'll go away, but these are worldview communities. And so why are people forming worldview communities as Christians, as Muslims, as secular people? Um, what's going on there? Are we in a cultural environment that encourages that legally? We absolutely are. I mean, if you're a church, you get special tax breaks. No one else does. So looking like a church is incentivized by our government for hundreds of years. So what, what's up with these worldview communities? And I think I only have partial answers to that question, but I think it's a really interesting one. And it gets at, um, what you were observing as that first reason, this question of being former evangelical. Well, if we're in a Christian-centered culture, we're all a little Christian despite ourselves. So maybe something we're doing has to do with the culture in which we're formed as people. Yeah, and, and the, there's a certain kind of personality type that starts communities. And many of the people that I meet who are pastors of big churches, um, they didn't become pastors of big churches primarily because they experienced such an incredible relationship with the Holy Spirit. They had a skill set and they were like, yeah, well, what do you do with this? He's like, yeah, church. That's, that's where that kind of personality, that kind of skill set is most useful um, and can be most, you know, and, and there's a career path there. And so it's not, it's never surprising to me like that the people that I see often organizing humanist communities or secular communities are people that that use that skill set in 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 the most logical place until they choked on the theology or they choked on something and then they're like okay but this is what i do you know that, that that's the thing like you know my dad always looks at me he goes like there is nothing different about you than when you were a christian there's like practically nothing different yeah yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you're, you're right that people have these different skills. Absolutely. And it is interesting how they get funneled into certain parts of life and walks of life. And and people who are hungry to take care of people, to, you know, to use that Christian term, yeah, pastoral yeah. care, where can they go to take care of people who are like them? How do they take care of other secular people? 
That's the bar. That's so much that, you know, I mean, when I was, you know, the thing is like, I would drive down the street in my little ghetto neighborhood and see these guys on the corner. And I just like, man, I wanted to jump out of my car and say, man, I got a better life for you. When I was a believer, I just wanted to say like, look, come, come be with me and my friends. Like we're going to, I can show you a better way, a way that you're going to have a happier, more meaningful life. And you're like, well, what do you do now? And I go like, I drive down the corner. I see those guys. I see those guys on the corner. I go like, Hey man, <laughs> come join me and my friends. we got a better way of life for you. And you're like, what, what do I have to believe? Oh, you don't have to believe anything. Like <laughs> believe in science, believe in reason. Like this is just a be- like an empirically better way of life. Um, you'll yeah. be happier. You'll die. You'll die feeling more satisfied with your life. You'll, you'll, you'll experience a, a higher degree of excitement and enthusiasm. Like this is, you, you, you know, and so yeah. it's, but, but you go like, oh man, a lot of people will drive by those guys in the corners and they're just like, Hey, those are guys on the corner. Like, let me lock the door. Like not everybody has that inner drive to, you know, I want to try to make somebody else's life better. I mean, it's probably a sign of mental illness on my part. Like there's something wrong with me that I like want to control everybody and fix everybody. Um, but it is, a, but, but, but people like me are a type and you will find a lot of them in leadership of any community. It's fascinating. I think when, you know, just listening to you, if we press on some of these questions, it's really interesting where they go. Um, and I, I know too, right. You said empirically better way of life. And, and just to, just to signal that, you know, there is like a, there is a way of knowing that secular people have and there are values that secular people have and you yeah. can pepper our language with it. What you're saying is there's, this is evidence-based and that shows yeah. how you approach the world. But also this question of proselytizing, right? Like this um, should, should secular people be proselytizing? What does that mean? You know, I think one of the most interesting problems, there's so many of these, I just think of them as all these little paradoxes that I encountered that became trails of crumbs that I had to follow and uh, as a researcher. And one of them has to do with proselytizing. It has to do with this question. Uh, also, did I choose to be an atheist? Did I choose to become an atheist? And I got really different responses from people where some people would say, absolutely, this is a rational choice a person makes. I do it logically. I, I, I made this choice. And, and other people, you know, I, I was a Catholic for 40 years. I Half my family doesn't talk to me anymore. This isn't a choice I made. This is something I got dragged into because I couldn't believe in God anymore. Why would I choose to no longer be a pastor? Why would I choose to lose my house and my wife because she's still Christian? Right? Right. Like, why would I choose that? But that question of choice, that's at this core of this question of conversion, proselytizing. Like, do people get to choose, right? Or, Or if you're I mean, just throwing like a sort of Molotov cocktail of reason into a group of Christians. And this is what, um, you know, Peter Bogosian would argue with uh, his manual for creating atheists. It's like there's a it's like a formula you can follow and you can get people to. Well, then they're not choosing if it's just a formula and you're just sort of setting. Well, and, and just because you undermine somebody's um, belief system doesn't mean you have found you have given them a new way. Like I know a lot of people who when you blow up their Christianity, they just become despondent. They don't just necessarily go like, oh, well, now I embrace meaning and purpose in a secular way. They just, they, they can't function. And so it's so interesting because, yeah, like the idea of choosing the beliefs, I'm like, you know, I could take, you know, I could take you and put a gun to your head and say, I'm going to kill all of your family and friends if you can't embrace Islam as your, as the true faith. And I put you on a lie detector test and you'd fail. No matter how motivated you are, you don't, you like, you don't think it's true. Yeah. And, and what so, I think captures this well 
there's this uh, we there's the skeptic movement we think of as the modern skeptical movement, sometimes the scientific skeptic movement. It's an empiricist movement. It's about taking claims and testing the validity of those claims through science, through the empirical evidence. But the ancient skeptic movement, the the skeptical school of Pyrrho in ancient Greece, the Hellenistic schools, the academic skeptics in in, in Rome, they are undermining all knowledge, all possible knowledge, and so. You can take like an ancient skepticism and you can question absolutely everything. If you take a modern skepticism, you can't question empiricism. And so there's this way in which, yeah, you can take apart anything using some of these tools that we have as people from the perspective of philosophy. But what, how you take them apart and what you assert as a new way matters a lot. And so if you're sending people on the path to empiricism, maybe that leads you logically down to atheism and secular communities. I don't know. But how you're dismantling things and, and what you're asserting as a replacement. I yeah, think and, everybody, and everybody has something where they go like, if you'll grant me this, I can build a whole system. If you'll grant me that, like if you can grant me that my experiences are valid or if you can grant me that, I think exactly. therefore I am. Like, like at some point, exactly. there's, a, there's a leap of faith in there for everybody. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Now that, so, so listen, I will, I will, pump this and I'll try to get as many people as I can to fill it out because I just think it's a really valuable piece of work that you're doing. I am so pleased to meet you, Joe. I can't tell you. It's a pleasure, Bart. Thanks for, thanks for making this happen, especially on short notice. And I really appreciate the, the support and the help. You bet. We'll get it up there. We'll get it up there. And we'll get it out there. All right, man. Wonderful. Have a great lunch. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Have a great day. Thank you. Bart. I'll talk to Take you later. care. All right. Bye-bye. All right, that was me and Joe Blankholm. I hope you enjoyed it. Do I sound a little, I don't know, too excitable on this podcast? Because I, I think I, I just, I don't know. Maybe I got my COVID shot. Maybe it's that. I don't know what it is. I'm feeling hopeful. I'm feeling energized. And I've got a quote for you. I, I hope you like the Joe Blankholm thing. I hope you please fill out that survey. It would be such a good idea. All right, so enough of that. Here's the quote. Bottom line is my sister and I are talking the other day about our parents complaining as, uh, as children sometimes do about their parents. I don't know. Maybe your parents are perfect people, fully enlightened, um, exactly approaching life the way you would like them to. My parents, I love very much. But, you know, especially in this post-stroke time, there's a lot of moving parts. And my sister and I are trying to help make things work. And sometimes we get frustrated. So we were sitting there kind of being frustrated, kind of venting a little bit. And uh, she said something that reminded me that my dad had told me a story the last time I was out there about how something I'd never known, that he had been left at the hospital for four months after he was born um, because he had a problem with his heart. And when he came home, the doctors were very concerned that he'd bond with his mother because, you know, he had been gone for, for four months. She, she hadn't held him. And uh, I was like, gosh, that is awful. And, you know, I know a lot of things that happened to my dad. I mean, his, his dad was an immigrant who didn't speak much English. They didn't, you know, didn't get along very well with the mom. Uh, died when he was, my dad was in his early 20s. My, my mom came from some, some interesting family stuff too. I mean, a much more together family, but not the most emotionally 
you know, aware people all the time, kind of some taciturn Scotch-Irish folk. And anyway, I was talking to my sister and I'm thinking, you know, these guys may not be as enlightened and as forward thinking and as like, like cool with their own mortality as we would like, but my gosh, when you think of where they came from and whether they grew up and, how, and the era they grew up in, they're amazing. They're amazing. The fact that, that, that neither of us are people of faith and they are just wonderful to us and supportive of us and excited about what we're doing and we can still talk about the spiritual side of life and, and meaningful stuff. I, I was like, look, you know, there's a lot of things they do that frustrate the hell out of me, but we got to sort of see the bigger picture. And she said, thanks, that's, that's helpful. And the next day she sent me this quote from a book she's reading about Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, um, who towards the end of his life uh, was asked to dedicate a statue, to speak at the dedication of a statue of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and the statue was a classic Lincoln statue where it shows him the great white man standing over a cowering slave who he's freeing from slavery. And I'm sure Frederick Douglass didn't like it. Um, but Frederick Douglass, as, as in many things, was ahead of his time, sort of seeing into the future, seeing the bigger picture. And he said something at this dedication that I think rings so true. Because um, he, he knew Lincoln. He worked with Lincoln. And he knew that Lincoln's motives and his way of doing things wasn't always what Frederick Douglass would have liked it to be. And then in many ways, he, he, Douglass at one point called Lincoln the white man's president. And he said, listen, don't kid yourself. He wasn't in it for black people. He freed black people because it was politically expedient. But in his speech, before the statue that probably people would be tearing down, you couldn't get it built today and a lot of people would want to take it down. Douglass said this. Had Lincoln put the abolition of slavery before the salvation of the Union, he would have inevitably driven from him a powerful class of the American people and rendered resistance to rebellion impossible. Viewed from the genuine abolition ground, Mr. Zink, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent. But measuring him by the sentiment of his country, a sentiment he was bound as a statesman to consult. He was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. That's the thing, isn't it? We, we judge people in the past. We judge people in the past by our standards. Sometimes by standards that their work made it possible for us to develop and to adopt. But we judge them by our standards and we often find them wanting, whether it's our parents or Abraham Lincoln or any number of people that are being reevaluated right now. And Douglas was wise enough to say, listen, if Lincoln had been as Black Lives Matter as we would want him to be now, if he had been that, that way then, he wouldn't have been elected president or he would have been driven from power. Or he wouldn't have been able to marshal the, the congressional support that he needed to save the United States and to, to liberate the slaves and to sign the Emancipation 
proclamation, that none of that stuff would have happened if Lincoln had been pure. He wouldn't have been effective. And so what you think of Abraham Lincoln, Douglas was saying, depends on the perspective that you look at him from. And I think that's a good thing for us to be thinking right now as we evaluate people in the past and also as we evaluate people from the past or people who have a past, that we evaluate them keeping in mind the sentiment of their country and keeping in mind the positions that they were in. I think uh, we'll be glad if we can if we can make this a part of the way we evaluate people because I'm telling you, 50 years from now, people are going to be evaluating us and they are not going to be thrilled with what we think was progressive. It's going to look tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was, I just thought it was a quote worthy of, worthy of sharing. And so I shared it with you because you're my people that I share quotes with. You're the people that I share conversations with. You're the people that I am so grateful are part of the Humanize Me community. And that's why you're the people that I'll see next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.